Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, April the 7th, 2023. We're back to the Second World War. It, of course, has never really ended. Uh, Richard Overy, the great British historian, uh, was on the show uh, last year when we discussed whether the war could ever end. His book, Blood and Ruins, The Last Imperial War, 1931 to 1945, deals with the broader political and economic uh, aspects of, of, of this global catastrophe. But of course... When it comes to the war never being over, of not being able to forget, not wanting to forget, many of the stories are deeply personal, uh, particularly those associated uh, with uh, the Holocaust. We're doing a Holocaust show today. I'm not sure if that's a term that's particularly useful, but um, uh, with a man, Max J. Friedman, who has a book out, Painful Joy, a Holocaust Family Memoir, which is partly about um, his parents, but partly, I think, a, a catharsis of his own life, about remembering uh, the lives of his parents. He's joining us from Westchester County in New York. Uh, Max, um, this idea of forgetting and remembering and the war never being over the second world war i mean no wars i guess can ever be forgotten for those who participate but what is it about the second world war that makes it so difficult for us collectively to forget i think too many people died too many people were touched too many things happened during the second world war that were different than other wars at a at a larger scale and an unheard of scale, for example, the genocide uh, and the Holocaust. And that is the story that I've come to know and understand better and still in some ways still can't understand it at all. So this is a book, um, it's about you, but above all else, it's about your parents. Um, here we have a photo of them for people watching, riding a motorcycle. Uh, tell me about your parents. Yeah, they uh, they were Polish Jews. They uh, grew up in southeastern and southwestern Poland, respectively. And they met after the war. They met in Sweden after they were recuperating from nearly five years of being in slave labor camps, in concentration camps, in death camps. Uh, they were both liberated from Bergen-Belsen at the end of the war by the British. Uh, and they met in Sweden, where the Swedish Red Cross took them to recuperate from typhus and from their beatings and, and from their losses, something that probably they could never recuperate from, per se, because they lost everything and everyone they ever knew and everyone and everything they ever loved. You grew up in, in, in what we might call a, a Holocaust family. What was that like? That was, that was something that I understood from the time I have first memories, that nothing was normal. Nothing seemed 
like the world around me, the world I saw on television. We had emigrated to the United States. I was born in Sweden, as was my sister. We had emigrated to the United States in 1952. They met in 1946 and, and married then. And when we came to the United States and we lived in this tiny little apartment in Coney Island in Brooklyn, uh, we, we lived in a world that was very sad. It was filled with poverty. They, they were very poor. They were refugees. And uh, they had nightmares. And I think at, at some point, we came to understand that our role was to become their parents. I think the, the term was child parents. And we would wake them up from their nightmares. We would stop them from fighting with each other. We would try to normalize a world that was never normal because the memories of their losses uh, were apparent all the time. And the act of writing this book, Max, was it an attempt in a way? I mean, obviously, it's a book about memory and um, particularly remembering your parents and what they went through. But is it also an act of forgetting, of trying to get beyond your parents for you? I think it was a way of honoring them and a way of of expanding their story to uh, the world that we live in now. I think that their story is in great many ways a story about trying to deal with uncertainty, trying to deal with having no control over your life, uh, whether you're gonna live another day or two or the next hour or two. And that was the life that we knew as children and that was the life that they continued to live their entire lives, I think. Uh, they lived their lives as survivors uh, from moment to moment. And for me, the book was originally just to find out who they were because I avoided knowing who they were for most of my own life. I'm gonna be 73 uh, later this month. And uh, until about five or six years ago, I didn't want to know anymore. It was enough that we had survived their survival. Uh, but then I came to understand as our own world became so uncertain and so fraught that I needed to... When you say, our, our, what do you mean our own world became so uncertain? Uh, the, the world of uh, Donald Trump, the world of anti-Semitism that had grown, uh, the pandemic world that we entered into, and and I, uh, it was sort of at the tail end of my writing the book, but it, it was a world where I came to better understand the nature of uncertainty. And I also came to understand the nature of the need for empathy for other people. And so what I tried in the book in, in Painful Joy to do was to actually create a portrait of these two people, these characters who begin as strangers to the reader. And over time, you get to understand where they came from, what their stories were like before the war and what happened to them during the war and the, uh, what happened to their family and them after the war and after the Holocaust so that you, you develop that these were not just another statistic, the six million Jews and the 
several hundred thousand who survived in Poland, but, but rather people, people who might be your neighbors uh, or your friends or just people on the street that, that you came to feel for them. And while you could never live in their shoes, I certainly didn't think that I could have ever survived what they survived. You can feel that you begin to understand what it might have been like and therefore how you need to reach out to those people and accept them. Max, um, ever since the Holocaust, there's been this debate, I guess, amongst European Jews on whether or not this event was exceptional, that it somehow stands outside anything else that's happened in history. Many people have written and talked about it from Hannah Arendt to Max Adorno and many others. Do you think that there's a danger, and I'm not necessarily accusing you, and it's not for me to accuse you of anything, but do you think there's a danger of normalizing the experience of your parents by comparing it to what you call the uncertainty of COVID or the age of Trump? I'm no great fan of Donald Trump, but he, he's anything but Adolf Hitler. Um, is there a point where we need to be careful to to, to underline how exceptional this event was and how exceptional the experience of people like your parents was? Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was an exception. Well, <clears throat> certainly, certainly. And anyone who knows people who were touched by, by this event, and I, I knew my parents and some other survivors, will see this as, as a moment in history that, we hope never comes again, and and an exceptional moment in history. But it, it it's it's a history that uh, the anti-Semitism had been going on for centuries. Uh, if this was the 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 point in history where it just moved to a level that was unheard of, and so it was exceptional. And 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 I think the reason why people like myself. Uh, write about this or people read these stories is to understand how very exceptional it was, but at the same time to, to be able to tie your own life to aspects of it that you can begin to identify with and just feel for a slight moment if they went through that uncertainty when we go through our own uncertainty in politics or in pandemics or whatever, you begin to touch just a little bit of the suffering, the anxiety, the depression, the, the inability to really function anymore. Uh, and that's, that's in a modest way, uh, what we've experienced these last uh, several years and what they went well beyond that. The world what went do you think, well beyond uh, if, if Sam and um, Sam and Frieda Friedman, your parents, if they had been around uh, in the presidency of Donald Trump or during COVID, what do you think they would have made of it? For them, was everything ultimately, did history stop for them? History, they left yes. The camps, so yes. Everything they, goes back to that. Right. They they would look at all of Donald Trump and uh, and uh, 
and the pandemic as, mm, well, they, they wouldn't know about Donald Trump, but the pandemic, uh, they, they would be concerned, but they had lived through so much worse. And, but they saw everyone around them who had died. And so the, uh, it, it's hard to explain and it's hard and comparing doesn't get you anywhere. But uh, what I wanted to do was just say, if, 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 if this could happen, uh, we can at least begin to understand how uh, a world can go upside down and be maddening and their world was just mad. It would it 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 had no sense at all. When I was doing the uh, the research, I asked somebody uh, how my father in 1936, 1937 could have married somebody, his first wife. He had a first. Yeah, wife they were both wife. married before. Right, they were both married. My father had a wife and two little girls, who were murdered in Auschwitz, and. And I asked because at the late late 1930s in Poland, while not quite as crazy as what was going on next door in Germany, it was pretty bad for Jews. There were extraordinary economic boycotts. There was violence. There was uh, all kinds of. Uh, there there was a great move to move about 85 percent of the Jews in Poland away somewhere, and. And they selected Madagascar as an unlikely place to do that. And that didn't happen. But uh, the things, so I asked uh, this expert, how did my father decide to start a family uh, when all that was happening? Uh, to fall in love for the first time, to have his first child. The second child was actually born in, in, in a ghetto. Uh, and... And the response was, well, what did you want him to do? Where could he have gone? Where could he have escaped? He was a, a, a poor Jew who had survived anti-Semitism his entire life. He didn't realize what that future was going to be. And I guess my point in some ways is just to alert people that the future is unknown and the next minute is unknown, and we need to understand that. And people who have survived the worst of times uh, understand that all too well. And we need to have some empathy for people who go through horrible, horrible loss and experience. We had Dora, Dora Horn on the show, one of my favorite, actually, shows. Uh -huh. uh, she has a book out, quite a controversial book, People Love Dead Jews, Report from a Haunted Prison, in which she argues that we, uh, we collectively remember the Anne Franks of the world and we forget the anonymous millions of Jews who died in Eastern Europe. That was the world that was mostly decimated. That, of course, um, Max, was the world of your parents. Tell me about that world, the world of the late 30s, uh, before the German invasion of Poland, what was it like for uh, your your parents, Max and Frieda Friedman? What was the their their community? Where, where did they each grow up? And, and right. I, I understand that obviously there was an element there was anti-Semitism, but perhaps forget about that for a moment and just yeah, describe okay. what what their communities were like. This, sure, this, this entire world that 
was completely destroyed right. by, uh, by, by, by Nazi Germany. Right. Well, they both grew up in what were called shtetls or little villages uh, of about a thousand or two thousand people. Uh, they uh, lived, they had large families. My mother at one point, her family was composed of 13 children. Many of them died uh, either in childbirth or, or later, and they, they ended up being a family of seven children by the time she was grown. My father uh, had a, a smaller family, but still coming from the same place. His, the, his father was a tradesman, uh, and he traded the, the farm uh, produce of the Polish, uh, the Christians who, who lived in, in and around that little town uh, for utensils or to try to sell them in larger markets. And my mother's father was a tailor and, and they were what they were called craftspeople. They, they didn't own land. They were poor. They lived from day to day. My mother grew up as a refugee, which I only found out during, during uh, the research. And she spent the first uh, eight years of her life uh, in Prague. Uh, because World War I had, had come to their doorstep and they all uh, moved. They were part of the Austro-Hungarian. Were they, were they entirely, shall we say, uh, were they entirely surrounded by uh, other Jews? Did they have any association with non-Jewish people? Their association with non-Jewish people was in, in trade. So my... Uh, my father's, as I said, my father's father was, was a trader. And he would, uh, but on a very small scale, he didn't have a shop. He would go into the marketplace every Wednesday and, and trade goods and trade produce and then try to sell it and, and, and split the money with, with the local farmers. My, my mother's father worked as a tailor. Her brothers, one became a hatter, another became a tailor, uh, doing the same sort of thing. They Which lived is uh, an age old. I mean, this was, these were communities that were relatively untouched by time. That this, right, this right. life had been going on for hundreds of years. Right. And, and everybody sort of knew their place in a certain way. Uh, then... The, those shtetls after World War I, most of those shtetls sort of disappeared and people moved into the cities. My mother, after World War I, moved to Krakow and they lived in a community of Jews uh, called Kazimierz. Uh, my father moved to Benjen, which had a popular, which was a city nearby, but uh, about half Jewish, half non-Jewish. So they, 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 their shops, when, when they started working, my father worked in a shop because his father died when he was four. So he became the sole breadwinner in the family. Uh, my mother didn't work, but uh, she ended up marrying a guy who made luggage. Uh, and so, is, so this discovery or rediscovery of your parents' life before the Holocaust what did it teach you? And what should it teach us, the, 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 these stories of two Holocaust survivors? I think it taught me, well, I, when I saw them, it taught me that, one, 
you never they 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 never got over their survival. Uh, they were survivors their entire lives. They could they couldn't live a normal life. Uh, but that's and, not surprising, is it? I no, mean, did that surprise no, you? No, it, it's not surprising at all. I mean, anyone what who was, went through that, it, it would be impossible to forget. Right. What was surprising to me was how they had been in training for survival for a good part of their lives. You mean even uh, before the Holocaust? Right. Before the Holocaust, my, my mother, again, lived on the streets of Prague with her family as a refugee. Uh, returning to Kazimierz when uh, she was about eight years old. My father lost his father uh, and became the breadwinner in, in a world that was, was very segmented as to how much he could, he could make, where he could work, how he could support his family. He was, uh, so it, 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 it already gave them a sense that they they had to do things that they never really thought they needed to do in terms of uh, trying to survive another day and trying to put uh, food on the plates of, of those they love. It is, uh, uh, did did do, doing this research make you more sympathetic to the plight of other communities that have also gone through terrible persecution, African-Americans, for example? It, it, it made me more empathetic to everybody, uh, whether they've gone through uh, personal tragedies or as a people. But you're overflowing with empathy, Max, but at some point that has to end. I mean, you can't live purely on empathy, can you? No, you, you live on love. You live on respect. You live on intellectual awareness of what happens. And you live on looking for ways to find joy. And what about what about anger? Um, we did a show recently with Nina Siegel, a Dutch historian on Dutch moral complicity in uh -huh. the uh -huh. Nazi persecution and ma mass murder of, of Holland's Jews. They were pretty much decimated. Um, of course, when it comes to forgetting, the Poles aren't doing a very good job either. There's a huge debate both inside and outside Poland about Polish complicity. What's what's your take, and what was your parents' take on the complicity of um, of Polish civilians and the Polish government? I think they were so uh, honestly. I think that they were so used to living in a world where they were uh, seen as second class citizens, and certainly the once they became uh, young adults, that's that's the world that they lived in, and they had. They, they had no choice but to stay in that world. As for my own anger, of course, you know, uh, I, I can't. What happened, again, makes me understand how neighbors could turn against uh, people who they had lived uh, near and smiled at and uh, there for many, many years. And yet, they, they turn into something else because at, at the end of the day, the, the, the undercurrents of, of life, whether it's racism or anti-Semitism uh, and, and these other sort of historic uh, relationships stay and they get passed on from generation to generation in all kinds of 
different and, and difficult and complicated ways. And I guess my point of view is looking at people, not as groups, but as, as individuals and, and trying as best I can, not so much to be empathetic about everything that happens. I don't walk around, uh, as you said, with, with uh, an empathy uh, crown on, on me. I walk around looking for more hair, but, uh, but, but really just trying to respect people and to try to understand at least where they're coming from and then deciding whether or not I want to have anything to do with them. Uh, we did a show also with Judy Battalion. She has a new book out on a group of Jewish women who fought back against uh, the Nazis in Poland and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Age-old debate again about agency and the response of uh, the Jews to their their own persecution. Some Americans say try to justify uh, gun laws, suggesting that if if the Jews had had guns, they wouldn't have been uh, carted off by the Nazis. What do you, what is your thought more broadly about um, this issue of 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 the Jewish in, in terms of your parents, um, why, at least in the minds of some people, the Jews didn't fight back? Well, I, mean, I mean, you know, uh, if you're brought up in a society where uh, there, there are norms, uh, for the Jews of that era, uh, there were norms and they accepted what they accepted. They lived as best they could within the uh, the confines of the society they fought back they you know the Poland was a republic for for a period of time and there there were votes and the Jews were represented some sometimes better sometimes worse sometimes not at all as as the 30s came along uh, so I, you know think about us today do I think about myself today picking up an AK uh, 47 or or in some other way preparing for the onslaught of the anti-semites uh, it, it it just doesn't enter my mind uh, thing and i don't think it would have entered their minds if they had entered if it had entered their mind they would have already moved toward that position there there were young people i'm sure that were but but they were not in a position to to fight the Nazi war machine, uh, uh, they just weren't. They weren't brought up to be uh, fighters. They, they, they had a different tradition. What about the role of humor? Jews, of course, and again, these are sometimes rather gross cultural generalizations, but they're known for their humor uh, in the face of darkness. We did a show with Jerry Stahl, a Jewish-American Humorist, he wrote a book called 999, uh, his, uh, his tale of depression, psychic torment, and a bus tour of Auschwitz. Did your parents ever make jokes about their experiences, about the Holocaust, about the death camps and the death chambers, the gas chambers, or was that beyond humor? No. Uh, well, again, as, I, as, I, as uh, my, my father never spoke about the war, except for about... 20 minutes when I was 20 years old. And you never I, asked him? You never... We, we were so attuned to the notion that they were suffering. Uh, it, it, it's hard to explain exactly how much we 
understood their suffering when we were just so young. But but we, we, we knew the basic facts by the time we were seven or eight that they had lost families. Uh, we had no family. We had no, no one but ourselves. Uh, so we knew basic facts about their lives. My mother would spend a good part of her time talking to us about her concentration camp experiences. Those are the only memories I have of being young is hearing her talk about Joseph Mengele, talk about Eamon Goethe, talk about Auschwitz, talk about selections, uh, talk about trying to, to hide for food and to hide from the Nazis and all those things. So we, we were brought up in, 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 in an environment where we wanted actively to not have them remember their past. And my father participated, uh, but, and my mother would compare going to the dentist with an experience she had with, Jokic, with Mengele in Auschwitz. Uh, and actually coming out that that it was worse going to this particular dentist than what you, Joker... you, you could you and, and I know this might sound rather crude, but could you tease her about that as a child? Could you say, oh, mom, you know, I just got no, I just no. went to the local store and it was just like going to Auschwitz. No, I, 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 I was afraid once because when I, I was in college, we went uh, on one of these two or three dollars a day with a bunch of friends to Europe. And we went to Germany, we went to Berlin. Uh, and then it was West Berlin and East Berlin uh, and, and Checkpoint Charlie and all the rest. And I was afraid to actually tell my parents that I had been to Germany. And when I finally did, they didn't really care. They didn't, they, they didn't care at all about it. But at the same time, they had no friends except for other survivors. They lived in a world uh, that that was very enclosed at one level and another level, uh, they they were never part of of the world around them. They never entered that world. We, when they spoke to us, they only spoke to us in Yiddish, uh, and and we just lived a life that was so insulated from from again what I would say was normal life that we came to understand that and accept it. So in a way, I guess. Um, speaking of the crime, this was part of the crime, uh, the impact on, on people like your parents, the inability to forget anything. Of course, the Holocaust is all about remembering. We did a show uh, in February with Wojciech Sojwica, um, who runs the, uh, who runs the uh, Auschwitz-Birkenau Foundation. And there's a great quote um, which defines the foundation. Uh, by Henry Apple, there is only one thing worse than Auschwitz itself, and that is if the world forgets there was such a place. But of course, remembering is a complicated thing. Uh, to, to end, um, Max, how should we remember this? Uh, beyond your parents, I know for you, this is a very personal story, painful joy, a Holocaust family memoir. Uh, but uh, for, for the rest of us, what is the what should be the core memory of this crime, arguably the greatest crime in human history? I think I, you know, I, I hate to sound like it's a cliche, but 
the memory is that A, never forget, and B, it can happen again. Uh, in, in just the right circumstances or the most horrible circumstances, smaller genocides have occurred and this can happen again. And we need to remember, I, I would suggest that people need to go not on a bus tour, but to walk around Auschwitz and to realize that the ashes of the people who, uh, who are under your feet because they didn't have any place to put so many ashes, including my entire family, my father's fa first family and my mother's are under your feet. And, and think about that for uh, a second and then understand that we have to do much more and do much better as a society and as a people, as a human, be human race.